Hi, I'm Abigail Johnson, and you're listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm Fabio Molly, your host. This week, I speak to Abigail Johnson. Abigail is making a name for herself in the tennis commentary world. She tells us how her great passion for tennis is helping her get commentary work and move up the commentary ladder. She tells us about challenges with commentary, behind the scenes work that goes into it. And she offers me tips to help with my own first commentary gig at the IMG Future Stars events in Greece next April. As usual, a shout out to our podcast sponsor, Slinger, who make the awesome portable ball machine, the Slinger Bag. You may have seen it recently being used by Serena Williams on our road to recovery. And if you want to know more about it, head over to slingerbag.com or check out their Instagram account, Slinger Bag. Okay, here's Abigail. Hi, Abigail. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. How are you? Hi, Fabio. I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks. I'm really excited to hear your story. We've been following a bit on Instagram through your breakthrough into finally a bit of ATP coverage. It's been a bit of a road for you, which I'm excited to hear about. But let's start off with telling me, what is your tennis background before we move into the commentary? Oh, wow. Well, it, it's a short story there, I think, because I uh, I had no tennis background right at the beginning of things. So um, neither of my parents played sport to that level. My, my mum was into her tennis when she was younger. She was a fan, but only to watch the sport and not to play either at junior level or professional level, anything like that. Um, so I, my first real memory of tennis and kind of coming across it would have been, I think, the Wimbledon final 2007 when Venus Williams was playing Marion Bartoli. That's the first vivid memory I have of seeing tennis. And I was saying the other day, I don't know how I picked it up. I'm quite simple-minded with these things. And the scoring system, which makes no sense to a newcomer, somehow I managed to pick it up and realize what was going on. And the next year, I recognized Venus. And I realized she had a sister as well, Serena, which I thought was really cool and the way they dominated. And uh, I got really into watching Wimbledon for a few years, which then turned into watching the French Open because I discovered that on television as well in, I think, 2011. And yeah, for a time, I would just watch whatever tennis would be shown on mainstream TV in the UK, which wasn't a lot. Uh, so in my mid-teens, uh, it sounds quite sad, but I would spend my time literally watching live scores. And that's how I became familiar with the players before I knew how they hit their forehand and backhand and how good their serve was. I got to know them through their stats and through their tendencies and matches and just by yeah, watching their scores day in, day out. And uh, eventually, you know, I was watching more tennis when I worked out how to go about doing that towards the back end of my teens. And yeah, I would say around my mid-teens, just through following the sport, just through you know, reading articles, watching highlights on YouTube, I became thoroughly obsessed, which was kind of the road into working in tennis myself. So yeah, I came from nowhere, but I was fully locked in within a few years. And did you play any tennis? Not for a while, actually. I had my first tennis lesson at about the age of 14 or 15. I actually, before I had my first lesson, I went on court myself with my siblings. And I've been watching tennis for a while at this point. So I just wanted to whack every ball and very little went in the court. It was quite a sight. Um, and I thought I, I'm 
I'm terrible at this, but I, I did start having uh, junior classes when I was 15, 16. And, I, you know, I was late to the sport, but in a way that was helpful because you come at a later age and you pick it up more quickly, I think, particularly if you're watching as much of it as I was. So, yeah, my serve still needs a lot of work as does my backhand. My forehand is consistent, not devastating, but it does the job. So still working at it with the tennis, but I definitely talk about it a lot better than I play it. Yeah, you definitely talk good. (laughs) And where did the move into commentary, how did that come about? Did you have any commentators you liked back then? Yeah, that's an interesting one. So, I mean, I'll take you back to the start. So 16, 17 years old, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with myself as a career. And I thought, well, I like tennis and writing was actually what I was good at in terms of my schoolwork. So I thought, let's try and combine those two things. So for about a year, I would just write features, match reports, etc. for whoever would take me online uh, for random blogs and stuff, uh, which actually led to me getting a a paid writing job actually for a website called livetennis.com when I was 18. Um, They offered me that full time, but I took it part time alongside university because uh, I was really interested in broadcasting. And I kind of, with all the writing I'd done, and even though people were telling me I was good at that, The dream was always to commentate, and I had no idea how to get into that kind of thing. Uh, With writing, you know, you hop online, you make a blog, you Mm. get accreditation to tournaments, you're kind of good to go. It wasn't so straightforward with broadcasting at that point in time. So I went to uni, and I was still going to tournaments, volunteering, doing social media, doing interviews, etc., Um, I started doing radio and TV and they told me at uni that I had quite a natural knack for it. So I should think about pursuing it further. And somewhere along the line, I met a guy who I always shout out. His name is Michael McCann, a friend of mine. He was already in the industry um, and he was working on a number of sports like golf, football, and he did a bit of tennis as well. He freelanced uh, doing WTA tennis matches, but as tennis wasn't his top sport, he knew that with all these outside matches he was covering on the outside courts, I'd probably know more about these players than he did because I'm a sadder, right? And I just followed everything. <laughs> so when Michael had these matches, he would message me and say, hey, what do you know about X, Y, and Z player? And I would help him prepare for the matches. So when he got a bigger job elsewhere and moved on, he put me forward to the team there who were in charge of getting the WTA freelance commentators and said, look, Abigail's interested, um, maybe have a listen to her. So I went to a commentary workshop with them and uh, they sent me a message afterwards saying, yeah, we think you could be good. Give it a bit of practice and we'll take you on freelancing on some matches on the outside courts at a a a 250, I think I did for the first time. Uh, So within a couple of weeks, they'd got me to commentate on it. It was Washington, D.C. It was 2018, so August 2018. Um, And that was my first match. I listened back to some of it recently. It was not good, in my opinion. (laughs) There was a, a lot of progress needed making, but I'm just very grateful that people saw what I was and from that saw what I could be and had the faith in me to give me that chance. And so... It is built from there, basically. I, I got my foot in the door by being in the right places, showing my passion and what I could do. And yeah, people had the faith in me to, to give me a shot. And hey, presto, here we are. <laughs> nice. Well, in a while, I want you to give me some tips because I'm doing my first commentating gig next year in oh, Greece. Amazing. 
at the under 12. It's the tournament that IMG are holding in some fancy club in Athens and they're bringing in players from all over the world. So I'll be commentating for the tennis channel. Oh, wow. And I've never commentated, I've never commentated before. So we leave the tips to the end, but um, (laughs) look, I'll need them. Definitely need them. But so since your first WTA gig, what's the progress been like? It's been slow, fast. How do you make more contacts to get more tournaments? Do you have an agent? What way does that work? Yeah, it depends. I personally, I haven't had an agent. I I don't think I've needed one necessarily to this point. That does not mean that it's been straightforward at all, particularly with the pandemic. That was very problematic for me because as a freelancer anyway, um, for someone at my age starting this young with no background in this sport, it is going to take some time to build up. So for the majority of 2019, uh, the, the WTA gigs that I had maybe once or twice a month, that was my main source of income mm. and source of work. So I stuck with that. Um, but at the same time, I was still volunteering at ITF events, doing social media, uh, just getting involved with any tennis event that was in the UK in whatever capacity that I could. And people notice you and they know what you want to do. And they, I, I think there's a respect if you, if you really put in the work and the time and the passion. And yeah, it was by putting myself in the right places and making sure that I was thoroughly involved in tennis, whether it be commentating or whether it be volunteering elsewhere, that it did lead on to other opportunities. So um, I, I got in with the LTA due to doing ITF events in the UK, and they put me forward to do commentary on the Murray Trophy Glasgow in September 2019. So that was the first ATP challenge that I did. And also the first commentary that I did that went out on the BBC, BBC Online. And uh, there's been more stuff like that. Amazing during the pandemic was Battle of the Brits Team Tennis, which led on from doing the LCA British Tour. And again, it was through... Um, Stephen Farrow, actually, who is was the tournament director of Queen's Club, had heard me on British tour and suggested that I do the, the Battle of the Brits team tennis as well. So that was encouraging. But I mean, the other part of your question, yeah, it can be tough when you freelance and you have to be prepared for weeks of nothing and mm. just kind of hanging on and trusting that you're doing the right things and that you're making the right moves. Because when you you might have a heavy week of work and you enjoy it and it's great and you get good feedback. But then if you have two weeks of nothing, you inevitably start to question and say to yourself, (laughs) what am I doing with my life? You know, because it goes against the norm of a nine to five where, you know, your wage is consistent and your hours are consistent and you really have to, yeah, trust the process and trust that the work you put in will inevitably show itself. And even now up to this point where it looks like I'm doing well, there will be weeks where I question and say, you know, am I actually on the right path? But I will say, looking back, that every single time that has happened, every single time I've started to wonder whether I am in the right career path or whether I should be doing something more, something has come up to tell me, hey, keep going. One such example of that was Roland Garros this year when I'd started to question. And basically at the time, the only thing that I was working on was the UK Pro League. So I thought, oh, wow, well, if Pro League goes, I'm in a bit of trouble. Up comes Roland Garros. So I've definitely learned to keep going, to keep trusting. And, you know, I believe that if this is where I'm supposed to be, 
And if I keep working hard, the doors will open. So yeah, you might have figured out by now, Fabio, that I ramble quite a lot. So if it's too much, just intercepts and all is good. Now, people are here to listen to you, not to me. So uh, that's if you're doing that, it means I'm doing a good job, I think. So question I have is obviously you're commentating, you know, you've done the Roland Garros, you do some of the good British stuff, but then you said you do some of the future stuff and maybe players aren't as well known. It's harder to get information on. How hard is it commentating for the players who aren't as well known, where there's not that much information? You can't log into IBM Watson, I'm not sure the name of it, and get all the stats on Federer on all the top guys or even a bit lower rank. But when there's somebody out there that there's not a lot on, how harder is commentating? It's interesting that you ask that because I almost find that easier. And I think that is in part thanks to where I am when I do these events. So at the moment, I'm working a lot on the UK Pro League in the UK. For those that don't know what that is, it is a, a UK specific league for British players to enter. It's a, it's a um, 10 or 11 weeks across the season and players that are based in the UK can enter that and each week is in a different location in the UK. Every week of that I'm on site and I've got to know the players from that really well. So ahead of matches I'll chat to them or I'll message them, I'll ask them about you know career highlights, how they got into the sport, um, I'll ask them how they feel about the conditions of the venue, that kind of thing. Um, I, on, on the ATP challenges, actually, as well, that I've done when I was doing the the British tour and Battle of the Brits Team Tennis last summer, I was staying at NTC. So I was seeing these players, like I had meals with some of them on occasion. I, I was in the same circles. And so actually, I think that's where the relationships with them come really handy because it is good for me because it makes my job easier but it's also good for them because the better my commentary is the better it is for them they get a more accurate representation of their journey to date and their ability and uh, I can sell their story that much better with the information that they give me so yeah I would say that I, I've been blessed to be on site for a lot of those I mean, lower tier events that I've done and have been able to utilize the, the players themselves to get the information needed. And I think that's been great for all involved, really. That's a good point you make where you're surrounded by them, you're chatting with them, you're picking up little nuggets here and there, which are what people like to hear on, on the TV. We've had Mark Petchy, Robbie Cohen, Nick McCarvel on the podcast in the past. So you're not the first commentator we've on, but they've all been great. And you've a great road ahead of you. But have any of those guys given you any tips? Yeah, I've spoken to a, a few commentators. I mean, I've had the privilege of working with some of them um, over the course of so Team Tennis, for example. The, the team for that was myself, Nick Lester, Arvind Palmer and Naomi Cavaday, who were all very established commentators and I was kind of the new kids with the with the big dogs, you know, who knew what they were doing. But they were really kind to me. Um, Naomi Cavaday, in particular, has uh, kept in touch and offered advice and uh, let me use her as a sounding board. And if I have questions, I can go to her. And you know, nothing beats kind of hearing from people who have been there and done that and have taken the roads that you have already. So. Yeah, I've chatted a lot to Naomi. Pete Odgers has been really good to me as well. A lot of people will know Pete. He's one of the, the big voices now, I think, particularly on the ATP side of things and at the slams. 
uh, yeah, he's given me advice. I've done a bit of commentary with him. And yeah, hopefully as I, I keep progressing, I'll work with more and more of these guys. Uh, yeah, I, I have respect for, I, I don't think people realize until they go to do it that commentary is not so straightforward as it sounds. Obviously for people that go into it, I mean, for me, the art of it has come quite naturally. I've still got a long way to go, but it is still, it's much easier to to listen to it than to do it yourselves. And um, I, yeah, I, I have a lot of respect for uh, the people that have, have given me feedback and advice and who, who teach me something new every time that I speak to them. Chris Bowers is another one that's really looked out for me. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely still learning and uh, grateful for the bits of feedback that I get along the way. This might be a question for me that I'll, I'll need. How do you not be repetitive? You know, think of different ways of saying the same thing because I know I listen back to myself in podcasts and you hear yourself saying words so many times and you're trying to cut them out like so is one and is another and are very sort of descriptive words and you're trying to stop that and it's quite hard to do when you're on the job at the time when you're so involved watching the tennis that you forget and all of a sudden you go into repetition have you had to do courses or training for that? No, I think it, it just comes with, with practice. And this is the big thing with, with commentary. I, I'm not necessarily sure that you learn to do it, but as you do more of it, you, you kind of, you learn as you do it. You don't, I don't think you take a course or something to become a commentator. Um, you get on the mic and, and you do a match and you listen to other people and that's, that's how you progress at the end of the day. Um, I definitely have had struggles with, repetition and words that I use to death. Actually, <laughs> some of the players at Pro League were giving me a bit of grief about it. Uh, just banter, of course, but there are words. Emphatic. I use emphatic a lot. That's my favorite word at the moment. Um, there's a lot of, you've got to be kidding me when someone hits a good shot, that kind of thing. But it's, it's these kind of things that when I look back at matches that I've done, I pick up on this. There was a time about a year ago where I was saying, you know, constantly and I listened back to the match and I thought good grief Abigail that's once every 10 seconds you know so you, you just you take note of it and once you've taken note of it you are more aware of it for the next match and I mean I nearly said it again there but it's one of those things where at the end of the day it's not going to matter too much but you want to keep it fresh and you want to keep it entertaining and I think that's why it's so key even though it's cringeworthy at times to listen to yourself back because that's how you learn. I think the biggest way you learn is A, by doing and B, by listening back to what True. you have done and looking at what you can change for the future because I think there is some danger of just listening to other people and trying to model yourself on them because then you become a carbon copy of them and you, you lose your uniqueness and what you bring to the table. So I think the two best ways that you learn with commentary, in my opinion, is by doing and by listening back. True. I think it's the same with podcasts and here. You got to listen to yourself back because that's where you realize, oh, I still haven't learned. You know, you're always on it. <laughs> but I used to, with Aussie Open, I remember be driving a bit when it was on during the day and I'd have the commentary on, the radio commentary. And I think Wimbledon have commentary as well on the radio, which I think is great because we all can't watch TV all day, unfortunately. But what's the difference, apart from the descriptive element of of radio, do you, one, prefer radio over TV or prefer TV? And 
what are the major challenges in the differences? It's interesting because I've literally just done radio commentary for the first time. You mentioned that I've just broken into ATP. That's something that I've been pushing for for a while. And I did uh, Cincinnati Masters for ATP Tennis Radio last month. And it's a little bit of a culture shock compared to TV because with radio, you have to be high energy, high intensity all the way along because you are literally all that the consumer has. They don't have the picture. They can't see anything else that's going on. They read everything from your voice. So your voice has to reflect at what point of the match it is. You know, if it's a key moment, you have to show that. If it's a good shot, you have to reflect that. And you don't want to leave too many gaps at the end of the day either, because there's a lot of buzz on the background, but they don't necessarily know what's going on. So so with radio, it has to be constant, constant, constant all the way through the match. And actually, I, I did a week of TV straight after I did radio in August, and it makes TV feel so much more of a light job, I would say, because that following week after ATP Tennis Radio, I had a week of pro league and I was doing four straight matches a day, generally on my own. So I thought, wow, that's going to be intense. But actually, radio made it feel a lot less of a workload. Um, And I think with TV, it's more measured. You've got to make sure that what you say is adding to the picture. With radio, you are the one person describing. With TV, everything you say has to be adding to what the viewer is already seeing. They don't want to know that that was a good backhand. They Mm. saw that was a good backhand. But why was it a good backhand? You've got to elaborate um, and and that kind of thing. And I think that, yeah, with with TV, you kind of, you set the scene, you give more background details. For radio, people come to hear shot-by-shot analysis. That's my, at at this point in time, that's my my general view of it. Um, As I say, I've not got as much experience in radio at the moment. I think that I will be very at home with it further down the line. A couple of other commentators said to me ahead of time that, Abigail, you'll be really good at radio because you like to talk a lot, which uh, (laughs) I I took as a compliment. I I definitely took that as motivation to, to do well there. So... Yeah, I, I think that radio will quite suit me because as you've probably worked out, I, I don't really know when to stop talking. But I, I do love TV as well. And when I was looking at moving into commentary, I, th- I think TV was the big goal. And on radio, is it always two people? It'd be a pretty tough job for one person, like a horse commentator where, you know, one can work, but obviously two works well for radio. Yeah, always co-commentary on, on radio. When I started on TV, I was actually generally on my own for WTA matches. So when I got to world feed coverage like Team Tennis and the French Open, um, I had to get used to doing it with a co-commentator. But yeah, radio is a big job if you have to do it on your own. And actually, I'm glad that I was practicing at home ahead of time doing it completely on my own because it meant that when you actually got to doing it with someone else, it, it felt that bit easier. So yeah, it would be an intense job with with just the one person in the radio commentary booth. Nice. And compared to somebody who's played the tour, somebody who's coached players, how much more difficult does that make it getting into commentary and, you know, to move up the rankings? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, One of my sisters was saying to me the other day, you've done pretty well, haven't you, Abigail, considering that you have literally no background and all the commentators and the pundits that you've heard of. I mean, there's the odd exception, like Gigi Salmon, for example, but uh, a lot of the, the pundits and the commentators at the top of the game are 
you know, former tennis players or coaches. And that's understandable because you want those experts there. Um, I think I had a couple of things going for me. I think the fact that I started crazy young. So I was in my teens when I started trying to make my way into tennis media. And uh, obviously, I, I'm female as well. And at the moment, people are always looking for more female voices in sport. So, so I would say that that has benefited me, I think, those two things. Um, but, you know, I'm so passionate uh, to, to an extreme, really, or definitely was in my teen, teens. And uh, I lived and breathed tennis. And I, you know, I watched it, I listened to it. Um, I, I just surrounded myself with it and immersed myself in it. And I think my willingness to give of my all at, say, helping at ITF events when I wasn't being paid, but I was doing long hours just working on the event, trying to give it a bit more coverage. People had respect for that. And also it, it deepened my knowledge of the game. And uh, I, I think definitely I, this has not been my intention, because I, I genu genuinely just care about the lower tiers of tennis. And I feel that, you know, it's not given the attention it deserves because people that work in the sport naturally want to work where the money is, which is higher up the ladder. So I feel like if, if people put more time and effort into the, the lower tiers of tennis, it would have more of a profile and it, life would be better for the players. And I feel that quite passionately and want to stay involved in that. But I, I think that my commitment at that level definitely has shone through to people. And yeah, I've just kept my head down and I've not even noticed it at the time. But I, I think people, they're watching you, even if you even if you don't know that they are. Sounds kind of creepy, right? Yeah, but no, yeah. people people have their eye on you. And even if you're not thinking about it, you if you keep putting yourself in the right places and uh, really investing in things and really caring, I, I truly believe that ultimately it does pay off. And I, I've just, knowing that, you know, I'm kind of a step behind because I've not played and because I've not coached, I've just given my everything to know as much about the sport as possible, you know, talking to players and coaches and learning on a daily basis uh, more about the sport tactically, strategically, physically. Yeah, I just fully invest. And uh, yeah, that, that has definitely helped to, to lead me to where I am right now. This podcast is brought to you by ASICS Tennis. ASICS is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. That purpose is also in their name. ASICS is an acronym which means Anime Sano Incorporate Sano, a Latin phrase meaning sound mind, sound body. Today, the brand is still dedicated to that founding belief of demonstrating the positive effects sport and movement can have on our mental well-being all over the the world. They just launched their most innovative tennis range ever, which includes the new Court FF3 Novak, the shoe designed from the ground up with the help of Novak Djokovic. Get your pair now at asics.com. And do you remember from commentating the lower levels when you first started, do you remember any players who've come through now to the top level? Do any ring a bell? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I think that, who did, who did I know on the, the lower tiers? I mean, Emil Rujivori, I was commentating on him at a challenger in September 2019. And he actually won that event. We all knew that Emil was going to come through. And uh, he actually, after the pandemic, he, he has come through pretty strong. So Emil has definitely won. Um, I mean, I've known the likes of Emma Raducanu and Jack Draper for a number of years and seen them at ITF events and 
I mean, they've been on the radar for a while, but watching them, you always knew that they, they didn't just have the game, but they had the the focus and the mentality as well. I remember seeing Jack um, at, at an ITF when he was 17, and he might even have been the top seed. And I was so impressed by the way that he composed himself and conducted himself throughout the event. Um, he wasn't rude, but he kind of, he kept himself to himself, like while other matches were going on. And then he'd go out and he'd, players match he'd win pretty routinely he'd go straight back out onto court and do another 30 minute practice session with ryan jones um, and all that kind of thing which definitely it wasn't just you know it wasn't just the big serve and the big game that marks him out it was the way he handled himself and that was why i was really interested to see how he fared against Djokovic at wimbledon because i knew that you know jack knows how good he is and how capable he is and he wasn't the kind of player that was likely to be intimidated by that kind of situation so yeah definitely wasn't surprised to see him snag a set but yeah I mean I've been around these lower tiers for a while now so if I thought longer about it then there there are probably more that, that would jump out at me but um oh Alex Dimonor I remember seeing him um he actually he lost to a friend of mine in challenger qualifying and I thought yeah that kid's good he, nice. he's going places and boom, he emerged the next year. So yeah, it's, I definitely enjoy kind of being around those levels and pinpointing players that um, are going to make a move in the future. Nice. Uh, we just had Jack Draper's episode released today. He was super nice. Actually brought up the point where after he took the first set against Djokovic, like he, he was calm and relaxed. Like he didn't go TT and it, it was good. But if anybody doesn't know we had that episode, they can go back and check it out. But Tell us just a few more questions here. How much research actually goes into, you know, a, a big tournament, you commentating? People may think, oh, she just shows up and commentates and that's it. But explain to the listeners how much work goes in behind the scenes. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think the higher up you go, the bigger the team effort is as well. So I actually find myself doing a lot more work at the lower levels where the players aren't so well known okay. and where I have to have those conversations with players and that kind of thing. I think I'm very fortunate that because I was so obsessed with the sport growing up uh, and a lot of the same players are still at the top of the game now, I have that backlog of information that I've kind of stored up from listening to interviews, from watching matches and I, I can see a situation in a match and I can pull up this thing that happened at Wimbledon in 2013 or something ridiculous, you know. Um, but so, so I'm definitely fortunate to have that on my side. But yeah, you, you, look, you've got to put the work in. I think the more work that you put in beforehand, the better your commentary is because you're more able to relax. If you know you've got those, I try and have an A4 sheet of paper on both players in front of me. And if you know you've got that background information, uh, statistics, etc., it relaxes you a lot more to just be able to enjoy the match and, and feel your way through it naturally. Uh, actually, I mean, so I've done a Grand Slam now. I did Roland Garros this year. And because that's a, a top tier event, the, the team behind the scenes, they will help you out with getting media notes and statistics uh, and have that ready for you when you go in. But look, the, the more homework you do, the better your product is going to be. You know, it's the same with school. Sure. It's the same with work. You know, anything in life, the more you put in, the, the, the better your product is going to be at the end of the day. So, yeah, I definitely like to make sure that I've, I've done a fair bit of homework before I go on air. I do like the guys over at the Tennis Podcast where they've Matt Roberts and he does all the research, comes up with some crazy stats. And I think that's what functional tennis needs. We need a statistician coming up with some never heard of stats. Uh, something you tweeted about was Dan Evans when 
he was playing for your job at one stage <laughs> or he was playing to keep you in a job. Tell us more about that. Well, you were implied specifically until Dan won the tournament or was defeated. What sort of way does a contract like that work? And how much pressure <laughs> does it put on you? He obviously didn't know about it, but we must tell him. Oh, that's, that is hilarious. I didn't know that you'd track that. Yeah, so the week after Paris, actually, I just got back to the UK and I had to quarantine, obviously. And the LCA got in touch with me because I'd got in touch with them and I said, look, if you're going to do any streaming on the challenges, I'd love to be involved in commentary because I, I just love ATP challenges. Yeah. You know, they're great and they deserve a profile. And uh, they got in touch with me and they said, yeah, so so Dan's playing Nottingham. The, uh, it was the, the Viking Open Nottingham, I think. Yeah, it was. That's the one. Uh, so the first of two in Nottingham. So they said, yeah. So every time, every time Dan is playing, you'll commentate. I said, just Dan. They said, yep, just Dan. I was like, okay, come on then, Dan. It's it's on you. My my job this week. So he did well, you know. It's uh, I I think people can underestimate how tough it is for someone of Dan's status now and caliber to to go in there and have to compete at a tournament where he is so heavily expected to win or to do well. I mean, his round one opponent was Thanasi Kokonakis, and we know how good Kokonakis is. You know, he, injuries aside, he could be top 50 in the world right now. And that was an epic match. That I think that was three tie breaks, that match. Uh, and Dan survived, so I lived another day. Uh, but that was, yeah, that was a fun match. Um, so he, he beat Thanasi, he beat Matthew Ebden, um, and then he lost, actually, to Dennis Kudler, who is just a brilliant grass court force and actually made third round of Wimbledon, lost to Djokovic. So, yeah, it, yeah, Dan was playing for my wage that week because if Dan didn't play, I didn't commentate. So he had no idea. Maybe I should have told him and uh, maybe we'd have gone all the way, I don't know, and, and got that trophy. But it was, yeah, it, it, I just... Look, I just love being involved in in that kind of event. Uh, Nottingham's brilliant, you know, because it's the it's the second week of the French Open. So anyone that has lost early in Paris and hates the clay probably wants to jump across the across the channel and get their grass court season started earlier to make it last longer. So there's always a strong ATP challenger draw there. And uh, yeah, I knew for sure when they asked me to do it, I knew that. Odds are, Dan, you know, it probably won't go all the way with the lack of preparation yeah. that he's had. But it, it was fun while it lasted. There was there were some very good matches there. I could say that could have made the commentary extra exciting where every big <laughs> shot, you're like, come on, come on. But what's, what's the ultimate goal? So what do you want to be doing week in, week out? What to you would be, I've done it? That's a really good question. You, I, I'm taking it kind of a, a step at a time, but I, do you know what? I, I've known that I've always had a goal to to be right up there at the top of of commentary. Um, I, I want to cover all the Grand Slams. I, I've done one now. Hopefully that comes back again next year because I got the opportunity last minute because someone had to had to pull out and they they called me over, uh, and that was awesome. So I, I would love to commentate work on all the slams um i'd love to do a bit more presenting as well actually and get into that kind of thing with the broadcast but um i feel like commentary is what i'm best at um what i'm really comfortable with and uh i feel like i i can bring something a bit different to to the table as well and i have a lot of respect for the players and for the game which I, I feel I can reflect so yeah I would just love to climb as high up the ladder as I can it was always a, a big goal to commentate for the BBC so so to get to do that last year on team tennis was awesome and, and hopefully I can go further with that 
Um, but however high up the ladder I go, and you, you know, I, I would like to go as far as I can, uh, I'd still love to be involved in your ITF events, your ATV challenges, the UK Pro League, because I passionately feel that there should be more of a profile for that level of event. If you look at a sport like football or rugby or cricket, the other big world sports, they are supporting so many more players than tennis is just because they've spread the money better or, or people are, have like certain events have been promoted more. And I just feel that if there are people in the right places within tennis, we can make tennis more sustainable and more maintainable and an option further down the rankings ladder and i i definitely want to be involved in that so you know if one day you are seeing me at wimbledon and the australian open and, and the french open and the us open i still want you to be seeing me at, at those atp challenges and itf events because there's so much talent there there's so many great stories there of people who are grafting to make this their life and i i think that that deserves more exposure or you can join me at the under 12 events <laughs> <laughs> but yes. so let's end it with some tips for me what would be a few handful of tips that you could give a newbie like me who's going to be commentating on under 12 players which i know some of the players because we've been posting about them on functional tennis over the years so it's not that I'm seeing like 20 new players that I've never seen before I know some that know how they play I know what they're good at I maybe know their parents because that's who I deal with maybe their coach so what advice can you offer me? I think one of the big things for commentary and something that I've had a lot of good feedback from players from coaches because of this and I didn't even realize I was doing it until people did it through me I very much look at things from the player's perspective. I'm not an outside judge and I'm not saying, oh, they're a terrible shot at a big moment. Why are they doing that? I, I'm reading the match and the game and putting myself in their shoes and how are they feeling about that shot and why was it not a great shot for them and what would they have wanted to do differently? It, it's very much uh, not an outsider looking in, but I, I will place myself on one side of the net and the other side of the net and read what's going on from their perspective. And you have a lot more respect for the situation when you do that. And you, it's kind of, um, yeah, it's, it's a more respectful way of looking at it. And it's a better way of promoting the sport and kind of sharing what's going on. You know, it's, it makes it more insightful. And yeah, I, I think, you know, bad commentary can be when you're just sat there saying, oh, you know, terrible shot. Like, why are they doing that? But think, put yourself in their shoes. Why have they done that? Are they tight? Is it the scoreboard? You know, that kind of thing. Just read the situation from their perspective. And uh, that is, is definitely something that I try to do in every match that I commentate on. And I, I think that that is where quality commentary does come from, ultimately. Nice. I may have to hit the local tournaments here to get some practice in. But also, lastly, how do you work on the names? Like most of the names we know are household names, but you come across some strange ones and where you just say them time and time again. Any big mishaps you've had? Oh, wow. Wow. This is interesting. So, I, I mean, the ATP website particularly, I'm not sure if the WTA website does this yet, but you can go 
to a player with a certain ranking and there's actually a button on the website and you can you can click the button and the player says their name so that's very helpful um if it's uh for example with Igor Sviontek um I, I can't remember I, I think I went to someone of the same nationality and said how are you pronouncing this surname and I got the correct pronunciation so I was getting praised for months over that because well everyone else was going down the Sviatek or whatever and I was here with Igor yeah. Sviontek and everyone thought that was cool because somehow I know knew how to pronounce the surname you know sometimes I ask if, if I know there's a player that's a friend of someone I'm commentating on I'll hit them up and say look how, how do you how do you commentate yeah. and, and and say this name um sometimes you wing it and hope for the best uh that, that's another one but there, yeah there was a situation recently and this is funny because without realizing it for years okay for years I've called Stefanos Tsitsipas, Stefanos Tsitsipas, glass at me going, what are you doing? It's, uh, it was just, you know, it was banter. It was funny. I got the hang of it. But that's the worst when you've been saying a name a certain way for a length of time. And then you get into a situation and they're like, actually, you know, we'd rather you said it this way. I mean, if you go, I've done stuff on the WCA and uh, their rule is kind of if, if a player is known to to have their name said a certain way we go with that even if it's not technically correct i mean maria sharapova is a prime example technically she's maria sharapova but she went with sharapova from a young age because that for branding and for marketing and whatever people know her as maria sharapova so it's kind of in her best interest to go with that but uh yeah the, this discussion of pronunciation is definitely an interesting one and, and i'm always kicking myself when i find out that i i've been doing it a little bit wrong for a while because yeah it, yeah, it takes some time to to get out of that the wta does have i didn't know that atp tour had that i know the wta have that where you press on their name and it it tells you the name but from all my listening to tennis the eager one is the one that's butchered the most I think obviously it's been on TV a lot but I've heard that butchered so many times I even butchered it we had our coach and our psychologist on and every time I had like how to say it and I'd still get it wrong but we're all trying Abigail thank you very much for coming on uh, I'm excited to follow your journey even more now I keep up the great work and we'll be seeing you at the Grand Slams all the Grand Slams soon Thanks, Fabio. Thanks a lot for having me. Enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Abigail shows great passion, which will really help her go a long way in the tennis world. I'll be back next week. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>